Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello and welcome to a PhD student read episode 14, I think. I didn't check the year. I wrote 14 at the top of my Word document. I'm hoping that just my knowledge of my own show is enough. I am Daniel Underwood, the titular PhD student, and joining me once again, the Peruvian panel reader, Rodrigo Cocting. Hello, hello, hello. How's it going? I'm very well. It's cold here in Aberdeen, weirdly sunny, but it's also snowing at the same time. Global warming coming into full effect. <laughs> Meanwhile, here it is super foggy and rainy. It's like we stole your weather. Yes, that's typical. Typical Aberdeen. Oh, I'd rather have that back. I'm, I'm used to that. Not a fan <laughs> of snow at all. We did a switch. Although snow here isn't like snow I've ever experienced before. It's very powdery. It's sort of like hailstones, but snow like small balls interesting interesting uh i used to work at the local weather channel here it's called the weather network uh i love weather i love i could talk about you know hail and all this kind of stuff for forever it does mean that it doesn't really stick around because it's so so small yeah but so that's good for me i've yet to be affected i can still go to the lab and do mine Cell-based experiments, PhDing exactly crying is another way of uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I've realised that's what you're supposed to say when you do podcasts. Share it with your friends, rate and review it. Such, do that. Spread yeah, the word. For sure. According to uh, the so Acast have changed the way that they uh, tell you the information about your own podcast into a much more confusing manner it used to just be one graph and it would be like here's the total number and here's how many it's been over the past week or however much you set it to now there's about six graphs do you want to know how many have listened to individual episodes how many where are they from anything it's harder to find just the total number but we are approaching Mm -hmm. 400 and i think that's quite impressive just for this i'm I'm pleased other notes there will be spoilers these books are old but, I mean, I haven't read Age of Apocalypse before. Uh, probably won't again, but... <laughs> but uh, Harsh. But uh, that's, that's is this your last? Is this your last run of Age of Apocalypse, or do you no, think there's still more? There's one, one volume left. Fair. Admittedly, I will say, this is my favourite so far. But that's, uh, I don't know, faint praise. <laughs> There was a lot of preamble before they got to the meat and potatoes of the story. Yes, I'd say things things happen in the, in this volume, which makes just just by that makes it the best one. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, who went first last time? Was it me? Was I it think you? I did. So I think maybe the the onus is back on you here. Oh, yay! Well, welcome to the side st- the side show. A PhD student complains about the comic books he reads. <laughs> Um, to catch you up on what happened in Volume 2 that I didn't finish last month, 
Jean Grey and Weapon X broke up and went their separate ways as uh, Jean wanted to prevent the Human High Council from uh, sending their nuclear weapons to the US and killing Apocalypse, whereas uh, Weapon X, aka Logan, uh, wanted to help them do that. So that, those are two sides that I cannot necessarily agree. Uh, Gambit and his externals, they made their way into space, met up with the Star Jammers and are going to steal the Makran crystal from the Shi'ar Imperium. Um, as I just said, this is my favourite volume. I've written in capital letters, finally things are happening. Yay! Yes. But something I'm it only to... took yes. It only took how many issues? Like 22 issues for oh, things to get going. Too many. Too many issues. Um, but the first thing I'm not a fan of is the cover of, of uh, this volume. It's, it's done by Romita Jr., which surprised me because usually I like his uh, art. This, it looks like it was done quickly. No one... So on the cover here, we've got Sabretooth, Quicksilver, Bishop, Colossus, Iliana, um, yeah, Magic, Morph, Rogue... I mean, you can easily tell it is them, but they have no detail to any of their faces. They're all very smooth. They don't have a nose. No one's got a nose. Not a fan. Not the best work. No. It does sort of look like maybe it was done last minute. I don't know. It's like, we need some art to put on the front. Oh, here you go. This will do. Um, I've gone about... After editing uh, the last month's episode, I realised it's very hard to understand what I'm going on about. Because I'm constantly jumping between, it's like, oh, here's the X-Men doing this, and then here's Gambit and the Externals doing that. Which, you know, it's how it's presented in the volume, but it's quite mm -hmm. hard to keep track of what's going on. Um, so I have grouped grouped the plots together into, this is Excalibur, this is the X-Men, etc, etc. Interesting. I just, I mean, supposedly it's written, it's presented here in chronological order, but because all these separate teams are going off doing their own things and don't interact really in any way. It doesn't make any difference. I suppose if the difference would be maybe at, at the end, they all come back together if you read them out of order. It might make less sense. But because they're all so separate, it, it doesn't make any difference. As you all see, as we pick... As though we kick off with Excalibur, basically because Excalibur is, one, not only my favourite of these Age Apocalypse books, but also the book they choose to open this volume with, rather than uh, just X-Men. So, picking up where the story left off, the uh, mutant switchback had arrived in Avalon to meet the clairvoyant Destiny, and uh, upon touching Destiny, uh, she saw a future where Avalon was burning and destroyed by Apocalypse's forces. Nightcrawler is on a mission from Magneto. Is aboard a submarine that's bound to that's bound for Avalon to find Destiny to take her back to the USA to confirm that Bishop is indeed a man from another time and reality. I realised I didn't realise think this in the last volume, but I thought Destiny's powers are to see the future through touching them because he's a clairvoyant. Correct. But Magneto is wanting to prove Bishop's past, that he is who he says he is. So I don't really know why Destiny is the appropriate mutant for this. Mm -hmm. Especially when Rogue touched him and took his memories and then 
sort of touched Magneto like some sort of chain of memory sharing. And that's where everyone found out that he was a man out of time from a different reality. It seems the wrong mutant choice. Yeah, I I think there's some ambiguity there with how they use their powers to push the plot forward. I'm sure it's going to be perhaps another one of those. She meets Magneto and has a uh, underlying ability An she awakening. didn't know she had, seeing into the past. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Nightcrawler is aboard this submarine that has escaped after an attack from the Madri. But the submarine is damaged and the human refugees and Nightcrawler aboard are choking to death. So the submarine surfaces and are rescued by a group of pirates led by everyone's favourite eyepatch-wearing mutant, Callisto. Um, they are supposedly a salvage vessel, uh, looking, uh, gathering uh, treasures and such from wrecked ships out of the seas. So they agree to help take the refugees to Avalon, or at least part of the way, so they're not just stranded in the ocean. They take all their belongings in order to fool any uh, potential suspicion that they might arise if their ship was stopped, and they put the escaping humans into sort of torpedo silos to hide them. And then in the most unsurprising twist, release the uh, torpedo silos, killing all the humans, because they are just, they're bad pirates. Oh, what a, I'm so surprised. But luckily, Nightcrawler was not among them, and he is uh, very angry that all these people have now died. So he starts teleporting around, sticking his two swords into these pirates, exacting the revenge that he feels needs to be exacted. He comes face to face with Callisto, but before they can even fight, Mystique shows up, uh, Kurt's mother and part of the refugee escape train, and uh, puts a swift end to it by shooting Callisto and shoving her body into the sea. At the same time, Damask and the Pale Riders, which consist of Moonstar and Wade Wilson, Moonstar being the sister of Thunderbird who betrayed them all back in the last volume, um, mm -hmm. have received a message from Apocalypse. And it's their job to follow Nightcrawler to Avalon and then uh, destroy it when they get there. Uh, and then for some reason, Damas kills Moonstar. I didn't know why. She just turns around, kills her. <laughs> Supposedly she says it doesn't need three people to kill to uh, destroy Avalon. But surely having three mm -hmm. people is more efficient than having two. She's out of the way now. It's just the two of them. After a brief family reunion, Mystique takes her son all the way to the Antarctic uh, as they prepare for the final steps of getting into Avalon. Nightcrawler isn't happy with his mother, however, um, as he wants to know if the rumours are true that she is indeed robbing people before she gets them into the refuge. He goes as far as slapping her in the face, um, which was quite, as quite a shock. But she does She does indeed tell him that, yep, she has been t taking people's stuff. And she does this without ever entering Avalon herself because she doesn't feel that she deserves such peace. To which I then thought, well, maybe if you stopped robbing people, you might feel like you deserved more peace. But I didn't write this, so whatever, that's the logic. She... Uh, she feels like she doesn't deserve peace and so robs people before giving them the peace that they want. However, the two of them meet up with Kane, who I then realised in this volume is, is the juggernaut. That went way over my head last volume. Like, oh, oh yeah. Uh, they enter Avalon and find Destiny, 
She isn't too keen on leaving Avalon, unsurprisingly, but due to the vision she had when touching Switchback, she feels that maybe if she leaves this, if she leaves Avalon, that will be the uh, cause as to why Avalon gets destroyed. But she's wrong because Wade and Damask show up and start destroying the place. But Damask is shocked that such a peaceful, tranquil place could exist in the Age of Apocalypse Earth. And so uh, quickly betrays Wade Wilson. And uh, then Nightcrawler cuts his head off. Um, so that's the end of that. That's Other strange things that happen. Kane refuses to fight because he had a history of violence in the past. And uh, so will not fight and be violent in the present. Nightcrawler tries to convince him yeah. to fight. He has a brain aneurysm and dies. I thought he just passed out because he just sort of keels over. But no, Mystique reveals that he, he's dead. It's just strange, I thought. What a, what a way to go. But it is still my favourite of the Age of Apocalypse stories. It ends with Mystique, Switchback, Nightcrawler and Damask ready to uh, defend Avalon from more of Apocalypse's forces. And then I think I've actually realised I've ordered these in uh, how much I like them because Gambit and the Externals is next <laughs> and that's not next in the volume. Um, so Gambit and his Externals have tracked down the Macron Crystal. It's at the centre of the Shi'ar Imperium, their emperor there, using it for his evil, evil gains. But reality is also starting to collapse around them and they don't really know why. They think perhaps maybe this evil emperor is behind it. So they fight their way to the crystal and then end up going inside it. And this is where we find a small little blue alien man who uh, reveals to Gambit and his team that Xavier's death, the cause of all this Age of Apocalypse, is also destroying reality itself. The very existence of the Age of Apocalypse is, is causing reality to crumble. Um, and so it is mm -hmm. up to Gambit to save reality. Of all the X-Men, it's Gambit's job to save reality. And he must make a sacrifice in order to get a shard of the crystal. Because the crystal, it turns out, is massive. But one shard of the crystal has the power of the whole crystal. So they don't need to take the whole thing. They just need a tiny bit. He doesn't really sacrifice anything. He just says, oh... I'll do it for Rogue, and uh, the crystal accepts this and allows him to, to break a bit off. All of this does result in the death of Sunspot, however, who has been absorbing all of this sort of reality radiation that this crystal is giving off, and he's going to explode, so it wouldn't be safe for him to travel back to Earth with uh, the rest of the team, because he will just blow up there and kill everybody. So he's left behind, um, but Gambit and the Externals escape then. Well, return to Earth, and that's the end of that. I realised that was very brief, and whilst I may have put it, like, not much happened. It was all... Maybe that's one of the reasons why I like it so yeah. much. There's no preamble, there's no wasted <laughs> time. It's just, they get to the crystal, they fight their way in, they make this deal, they need to get the crystal back, reality's ending, they go back to Earth with the crystal. The end. They have a clear mandate of what they need to do, right? Like, I think the that... That's what I remember from reading, reading Age of Apocalypse, that it's like the Gambit plot is very clear as to how it's going to exactly. help the mission. And they get it done. 
even in Excalibur, you know, they know they're going off to get Destiny, but there's more things that have to be dealt with. Family, drama, Juggernaut getting an aneurysm. None of that is in Gambit and the Externals. Straight to the point. X-Men. Now, this is where all the preamble is, all of the wasted time. <laughs> so, you may remember in uh, the last time we discussed this, that Rogue had led a group of X-Men to stop a human culling by uh, the Horseman Holocaust. So now it's time to find out what they were up to. Um, it's not going great. There are too many humans to save, but uh, too many infinites to uh, hold off and not enough X-Men. Sunfire is also losing it, flying around, frying all the uh, infinites he can see in an attempt to draw out Holocaust so he can get revenge on something that happened in his past. However, this is having the unsurprising effect of drawing more attention to the X-Men, who are supposedly doing this as a covert mission. But I think having a man that is made out of fire is perhaps the wrong person to bring if you're doing covert. So Rogue touches him in order to uh, sap some of his powers away to calm him down. And we also, this is where we find out why uh, Sunfire wants this revenge. Turns out that, uns that uh, Apocalypse and uh, Holocaust killed his family and pretty much ruined Japan. So they did bad things. Sunfire wants revenge. Not particularly a um, massive twist. But back in Westchester, Bishop and Magneto are discussing the outcomes of what their plan would be. No, sorry, if their plan would succeed in that the Age of Apocalypse reality wouldn't exist anymore. And uh, whilst overall the positives far outweigh the negatives, you know, no apocalypse, no awful existence, there will be some losses, such as Magneto will no longer have a son and will no longer be in a relationship with Rogue. And so he's debating an inner conflict as to whether all of this is worth it. Um, but obviously comes to the uh, conclusion that yes it is his uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and then next is what might have actually been my favorite part of the entire age of apocalypse saga even though it takes place in the pages of x-men back in chicago rogue's team uh are sort of taking a pause making taking stock of what they have to do and uh Sabretooth decides that they need a big distraction in order to stop Holocaust, save all the people, and uh, escape alive. And this distraction will be he himself. He and Wildchild will go up and have it out with Holocaust whilst the rest of the X-Men do whatever it is they need to do. So after saying his goodbyes, that's exactly what he does. And it's quite, quite, a, quite a fight. They pick up rocks. There's, I mean, Age of Apocalypse is, as we found even from the first volume, quite a uh, violent take on the X-Men. But it's people being slammed into the ground, people being crushed by rocks. Very enjoyable. And uh, at the end of it, Sabretooth gains the upper hand and tears the top of Holocaust's sort of protective suit. For those that do not know what Holocaust looks like, he sort of looks like a bit like the Hulkbuster armour with a lava print on it. But that sort of lava plasma isn't just a paint job, but rather that is the man inside. He's just a full energy being. Um, and this suit is sort of there to protect him, giving some, give him some sort of actual physical form. So Sabretooth rips the head off, um, but unfortunately Holocaust just reconstitutes himself inside the suit and uh, takes Sabretooth captive. 
while Child is uh, able to uh, escape, because at one point during the fight, Sabretooth goads Holocaust into giving up the information as to where his sort of base of operations is. So he sets Wildchild free to go off, find the X-Men, um, and then take them to this base. I still know absolutely nothing about who Wildchild is. He's just some sort of dog person. He doesn't speak, he behaves <laughs> like a dog, but looks like a knockoff Sabretooth. Do you have any idea who Wildchild is? He is kind of just that. I think he became very popular during Age of Apocalypse. I don't know if you read any current X-Men comics, but he is in uh, one of the teams now, too. His personality is just kind of a more animalistic, I guess, version of Sabretooth. Um, I think sometimes in alternate universes, he's portrayed as having a bit more intellect and controlled, but but in our, the main Marvel universe, he's just, I guess, like a an right. even more animalistic. So are they related? Are they related in any way? Because they do look the same. I believe no, actually. No. I, I I I might be a, a bad X Men fan here, but I don't think they are. Well, you're a better X Men fan than I. Oh, then what a <laughs> what a fortunate coincidence that they look like brothers. Yeah. Um. Well, he finds his way back to the X Men. And uh, Rogue, who in the previous volumes was dead against using her her powers for any reason at all, touches Wildchild in order to get the information from his brain. Um, she then becomes somewhat more feral for about two panels, um, but in doing so, now knows where Holocaust space of operations are, and importantly, where Sabretooth is being taken. Mm-hmm. We then get a very brief flashback as to how Blink and Sabretooth met. Both he and Logan rescued her from a burning building. To which my thought was, well then why? In the flashback, the building is burning. And it's Wolverine who breaks the door to get her out. Sabretooth is just the person that does the actual lifting, the carrying of her out. Really, I feel it's Weapon X Wolverine that should deserve her adoration. But no... Victor Creed. Now, it's necessary for the plot that those two are much closer. He mean, Weapon X is off with Jean Grey doing all sorts of other things. Morph, he finally does something useful. He turns into a whale <laughs> and uh, transports the uh, team right up to the gates of this processing plant. And the infinites on guard there are so confused by this big talking whale that appears that the X-Men are allowed to uh, just break out of its mouth Kind of like uh, Pinocchio. Imagine that whale, and you aren't too far off. Um, And they'll fight their way in. Uh, Morph even made me laugh here. I couldn't believe it. After two volumes of just utter disdain at everything he says and does, there's a moment where he takes the form of a wall and uh, makes a joke about how, uh, well, people here are like stone, and he's like, I resemble that. (laughs) Something landed finally. I have. I think maybe this may have been the peak for Morph. I can't. I don't. I fear he will not be coming back from this high point of his uh, X Men career. Um, Blink separates from the team, sensing that Sabretooth is nearby. I guess the power of love, the uh, familial love between them, has now given Blink the ability to sense people. So she teleports away and uh, comes face to face with Holocaust. They fight for a bit, and then Blink eventually gains the upper hand by teleporting him into a vat of acid or some sort of 
nebulous green liquid. Sunfire redeems himself and uh, sort of learns to love himself again by freeing the trapped humans. But unfortunately, Holocaust survives his uh, fall into this green liquid and escapes. Rogue wants to chase him down, but then Iceman shows up and says that they need to return to Westchester. But why do they need to go there? Well, that's because Apocalypse, he showed up to Westchester whilst all this was happening and beat the living hell out of Bishop and Magneto, the only people there, because uh, the rest of the X-Men, remember from the last volume, were off in Maine dealing with Abyss, who were trying to uh, kidnap all those human refugees. Um, so, yeah, unsurprisingly, Apocalypse just utterly destroys them both. Um, Bishop is then sent to Quebec, to uh, have his mind studied by the Shadow King, whereas Magneto is taken to Apocalypse's main headquarters in uh, New York. Uh, at the hands of the Shadow King, uh, they find out that Bishop is indeed a man out of time and out of, out of reality, but then Bishop fights him off, and that's the end of that. But uh, Pietro Quicksilver has to uh, make a decision. Who do they go after? The man they barely know, who's important for their mission, or his own father? Well, they choose the former. They go off and save Bishop. And that's, I imagine, what the next volume of X-Men stories will be about. Admittedly, I do like the way these ones end. They all end in a cliffhanger that actually makes sense. They don't mm-hmm. just be like, oh, we, clear, we, 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 we have more books to write, so let's just stop here. Yeah, that's something I can give to Volume 3 compared to the others. Next up is Generation Next, and I still can't get behind this art. And I think I have to lay the blame with the colourists of uh, Steve Bucolato and Electric Crayon for this. Oh my god, that's reminded me. I didn't read out who the creators were. I'll do that at the end. Um, So the actual character designs, I quite like. They're over-exaggerated, they're just different. They aren't the usual 90s hero fare, but the high contrast colouring that accompanies this generation next book, it is, I, I don't like looking at it, which is a big, bit of an issue when uh, it's a comic book rather than just prose. But the team, led up by Shadowcat and Colossus, they are breaking into the Sugarman's lair, who we are familiar with from Volume 1's X-Man books, um, and they are there to break out Ileana Rasputin, Colossus' sister, a.k.a. Magic, in order to use her supposed latent time travel abilities so they'll be able to send Bishop back in time and prevent the whole of Age of Apocalypse from happening. Chamber and Skin uh, kill some of the Sugar Man's henchmen, take their uniforms in order to disguise themselves and uh, enter the uh, his, his lair undetected. Husk, however, is undercover at a bathhouse that is frequented by Sugarman's head of security, Quietus. Quietus then takes her back to his home, but soon discovers that she is not who she seems to be by using some sort of device that, uh, if you're a mutant that has leanings towards helping the humans, this device will make you throw up. And throw up she does. So, Quietus is, uh, very angry with this, and, uh, they... Trade a few punches before the uh, head of security drinks from a flask, which Hus claims to be from her grandmother's. But it's not. It contains fellow 
Generation Next teammate Vincente, who, after being confused as to what his powers were in the last Generation Next issue, it seems he has the ability to change his physical form into different matters. So when he was like a golden energy being, that was just one form of his. In this case, he was liquid and he took, he, he, took, he was hiding in this flask. So when Quietus drank him, he exploded out of him. And then things get weird. Husk uses her body manipulation powers to make herself look like Quietus. So he has, she has his head and his hands. But Quietus himself is quite a large man and she cannot fit into the clothes he was wearing. And so Vincente becomes heir in order to fill out the suit so he looks like how he would normally look. And then they sneak around together and eventually meet up with Chamber and Skin in the Sugar Man's headquarters. Um, and then he shows up and wants Quietus to kill these two intruders, which I think was my favourite cliffhanger of all of this, because obviously Quietus is not Quietus. He is Husk and Vincente's together. It's weird. It's not all bad news, though, because Colossus and Shadowcat also managed to sneak in during all of this using uh, Shadowcat's abilities. And Mondo manages to grab Iliana and keep her safe in the ground with him. But this uh, comes at a cost because Mondo, who is sort of made out of rocks and dirt, um, can only do this for so long before being consumed into him. Drama there. And last, but by no means, well, by all means least, is X-Man. <laughs> I don't like X-Man because I still don't really know why he, he, he has all the powers and that just makes mm -hmm. it a bit boring yeah um, I can't, I'll admit, I'm not the biggest Superman fan for that reason if you've got all yeah. the powers you know, there's not much threat involved um, for sure well but before we even see what Nate Gray is up to we get to find out what Domino is up to after being ordered by Apocalypse to uh, track down this supposed telepath that has uh, entered their detection after the Shadow King found, well, detected another telepath that was, they were supposed to be all wiped out by Apocalypse, but now there's a new one. Um, so she has gathered a team of Caliban and Grizzly. Caliban, you may remember from Logan, the Pale sort of mutant detecting mutant and Grizzly is just a bear man um, Nate is being trained by Forge so that he has more control over his powers but also will uh, learn not to rely on his powers so much but much like Anakin and Obi-Wan Nate feels like Forge is holding him back and so he turns to his new friend and ally Essex who as you may remember from the last volume is Mr. Sinister in disguise. And it's a very obvious disguise. He still has the red diamond on his head. How no one knows that this is clearly just a musclier, taller Mr. Sinister with a ponytail, I do not know. But perhaps it's like the Clark Kent thing. If you don't suspect it's not Mr. Sinister, it's not Mr. Sinister. <laughs> so this band of merry men, which include Forge, Brute, Sauron, Toad and Mastermind, are sitting around a campfire on, uh, and trying to decide what they should do next after their uh, assault on a train in the last volume. And that assault added a bit of female to their team in the form of Sonique. Um, 
Essex manages to convince them to have a stoop around one of the Dark Beast laboratories. So they head over there, and the sense of death in this place drives Nate into a frenzy, who starts attacking both the Infinites and the Madri who are stationed there. They uh, barely escape with their lives and uh, are resting in an old farmstead. Brute finally figures out who Essex is. So supposedly the uh, the dumbest of these uh, mutants is the one to figure out that Essex is Mr. Sinister. And that sadly results in his death as Mr. Sinister just kills him. Forge approaches Essex unaware of the murder he has committed. But before he can even say or do anything, Domino and her murderous gang show up. And in the interest of time, they fight and the heroes win. But that results in the death of Mastermind and Toad. Forge then discovers Brute's body and finally puts two and two together and realises who Essex is. And so, yet again, Essex kills him. Um, Forge and uh, Nate Gray have some sort of telepathic connection. So when Forge is killed, Nate detects it. And Nate finally shows how much power he really has by blasting Essex. Well, that doesn't hurt him, it just sort of rubs off his disguise and uh, reveals that, oh, it's Mr. Sinister. What a twist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the end of all the issues that all the stories that are more than one ranked in order of how much I like them. But that's not all that's included in Age of Apocalypse Volume 3. So we have one issue of Factor X. Um... And after leaving Logan at the end of the last volume, Jean has made her way to America and uh, is uh, finding a way into Sinister's lab. Because if you may remember from months ago, that Mr. Sinister has been feeding the Human High Council information um, via Jean and uh, Weapon X. When she gets there, she finds the lab to be destroyed. Um... But she's also caught by Havoc and is sent to one of the Dark Beast's laboratories. Uh, Cyclops finally shows his true colours by refusing to kill Jean under the instruction of his brother. And so uh, Alex Havoc finally has him locked up as well and gets to live his dream of running a little Factor X team. Dark Beast tortures them for a bit, but Jean uses her telekinetic abilities to just free the free herself from the uh, binds that she finds herself in and then they escape they go off to liberate the prisoners now there with dark beast we also get an issue of weapon x and he finds himself on wandagore mountain which you may remember is where the x-men originally had their base and where scarlet which was killed by nemesis who is now holocaust he is on a mission for the human high council to find someone to help them organise their attack, their nuclear armoured zeppelins that they're going to send over to the United States. And whilst climbing this mountain, he comes across cyborgs, because cyborgs exist in this uh, reality as well, Mangle and Deadeye, and he quickly dispatches them. At the top of the mountain, he meets Carol Danvers, of all people, who isn't Miss or Captain Marvel in this reality, but it's just a human with a lot of guns. And she's up here guarding the mutant gateway, who has the ability... See, I thought that he had the sort of ability to discern and learn lots of knowledge. 
but after a quick look on Wikipedia, that isn't what his powers are. He can manipulate time and space, which makes the name Gateway make a bit more sense. Um, but he's using his manipulation of time and space to try and learn as much of human history as he possibly can. Why the humans want him to lead their assault, I don't know, but supposedly they do. Um, I guess he might have knowledge of where would be good to strike, but I don't, it doesn't. Yet again, they've picked a character here which I don't feel makes much sense as to why it could be them, because I would have thought that in the last volume we see the the system the humans were going to use to send their Zeppelins over to America get destroyed. Now this system was designed by Bolivar Trask, so therefore he must know what are good targets to attack, and therefore why can't he lead the Zeppelins over there? He must know where they need to go, but no, this uh, gateway, that's who they need. Um, the cyborgs show up again, along with the rest of their team, which include the winged Voltura and a guy named Pierce, who was in the last issue of Weapon X that I hadn't managed to read from last month. So he's just a cyborg that tried to kill a bunch of humans. Weapon X took him out. Um, long story short, Carol sacrifices herself to save uh, Logan. So she's dead. So yet another character cameo that lasts one issue and isn't particularly necessary. Um, Logan kills Voltura and Gateway agrees to head back to Logan to Paris where the Human High Council is waiting. We also get a new issue, X-Universe. And it, were you ever wondering what your favourite Marvel characters were up to during the Age of Apocalypse? Well, this is the book for you. Like the non-X-Men characters? Yes. All the ones that haven't appeared already. Mm -hmm. uh, so Gwen Stacy is in Wakanda. And there is extreme drought and famine there after the death of their king, T'Challa, the Black Panther, at the hands of Apocalypse. So they are waiting. So what's Gwen Stacy doing? Well, she is waiting for supplies from the Human High Council. Um, but before these supplies arrive, Wilson Fisk, Norman Osborn, and a bunch of and a couple of other villains I've never heard of before attack in with sort of high tech weaponry. But they are defeated when Tony Stark and Clint Barton show up. Uh, they are there to bring the supplies that the Wakandans need and also to take Gwen and Dr. Donald Blake, a.k.a. Thor, back with them. But I don't think he is Thor. I think he is just Donald Blake. Otherwise, why is he not Thor? So I'm just hoping the fact that he isn't Thor means there is no Thor. Because otherwise, I feel like the Age of Apocalypse could have come to a much swifter end. Um, so, Susan Storm and Ben Grimm are other agents of the Human High Council. And they are on a mission to rescue Dr. Bruce Banner from himself, a.k.a. the Hulk, who is grey in uh, this reality. Well, why is all this happening? Well, we finally get to see the last of Apocalypse's horsemen, Mikhail Rasputin, brother of Colossus. He is heading over to Europe on a sort of false peace mission and is using an empath mutant I didn't recognise to uh, sort of will the subjects there to uh, agree with him and therefore Apocalypse. And in order to do this and make it look legit, he must meet with a delegation of humans, which include those I've just mentioned and Victor Von Doom, who is supposedly head of security of the Human High Council. Matt Murdock also makes an appearance. Um... 
he is still blind in reality and he is one of Mick Hyor's just lackeys he, yeah he's just sort of there because he can be and that is X-Men Volume 3 there we go which has been written by Larry Hammer Scott Lovedell Terry Kavanagh Fabian Nicenzia John Francis Moore Jeff Loeb and Warren Ellis penciled by Adam Hubert Chris Bacicello Carlos Ooh. Pacheco, Salvador La Roca, Steve Epting, Terry Dodson, Steve Scrow, Joe Madariza, Roger Cruz, Renato Arlem, Charles Mota, Eddie Wagner and Ken Lashley. Inkers are Dan Green, Mike Sellers, Mark Buckingham, Can Smith, Al Milgram, Matt Ryan, Bud La Rosa, Kevin Conrad, Scott Hanna, Tim Townsend, Phil Moy, Tom Wegsrin and Harry Candelario. Colours are by Joe Rojas, Steve Procaccello, Kevin Summers, Marie Javins, Joe Rojas, Matt Webb, Mike Thomas and Glynis Oliver. Letterers, Pat Brosso, Chris Eliopoulos, Richard Starkings oh, of Comic Craft. So one, only one member of Comic Craft was involved in the lettering at this time. Cover art, as I said, by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Janssen. Ah, there's only one more of these. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, I've, having liked this volume, I am hoping that I will like the next one because it will continue most of the plot threads that were left here, which I liked. Yeah. I mean, not that I want to throw this on to you, but there's actually, I think, an additional volume after the last volume, which is like uh, they revisited the Age of Apocalypse many years after like on its 10 year 20 year anniversary so it's like the new age of apocalypse i think it's called it's written i want to say by chris claremont who is a famous x-men writer but has aged uh his writing has aged in a way that is not always the best um i think that volume really really finalizes the age of apocalypse like i i don't want to give too much spoilers but i'm pretty sure it's like one of those things where like every character dies by the end or like close to that well that truly is quite the apocalyptic ending yeah (laughs) well i'm sure once again you enjoy the comics you read much more than i did yeah i mean i'm having a blast revisiting this daredevil run i love daredevil I've always loved Daredevil. I think he had, uh, like, Frank Miller, uh, people go to that name quite often when they're trying to talk about, like, high-quality Daredevil stuff. But there's been, like, a series of good writers that have written this character. And especially in this newish modern era, there's a lot of good good material to go to if you want to read a fun Daredevil story. So today I'm tackling volumes five and six of the... Marvel Knights run of Daredevil, which colloquially I just called the Bendis run. The first two, like there's the first wasn't Bendis at all, you know, then Bendis came in for one, then he didn't, and etc. But like we're we're into volume five and six of this run. Volume five is called Out. And if you remember where we last left Daredevil, there was this mobster Silk. Silky Silk. I don't know. It's like Silk with an E at the end, so I'm not sure what the correct pronunciation of that would be. He had asked for protection after failing to try like he had organized this 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 coup of the mobster power from from the fisks and he failed 
and in exchange, he he went to the feds and, and wanted to give some info for protection. And the info that he gives is that Daredevil is Matt Murdock, right? That that is something that he had found out, and like he he reveals that to the feds, and that's really the big the big cliffhanger. Uh, volume five is very much dealing with those repercussions of that that confession, and it's where Bendis really shines. Bendis obviously writes the writes the the script for this comic book. The art is still handled by Alex Maleev, who handles also the cover art. Colors are by Matt Hollingsworth, and those three, Bendis, Maleev, and Hollingsworth, are a consistent force throughout the, the run. And so, you know, I, I say Bendis run, but really all three deserve the credit of the creation that they did. The letters are handled by Richard Starkings and Comic Crafts Jason Levine and Wes Abbott. The book kicks off, like this volume kicks off with, with the the feds discussing the information that they just received as the the FBI director, or I guess maybe the person in charge of this particular investigation, a man just called Mr. Davis, he starts walking in. And so the FBI agents start, start walking, walking him through the information that was revealed. And they've kind of done some research already. So as he becomes skeptical saying like, you mean Matt Murdoch, the blind lawyer. And then they're like, yeah, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of, uh, of, proof out there that could contribute to this theory or could back it up right they start talking about how he was in an accident as a kid and he started complaining about like noises that nobody else could hear and that were far away and and stuff like this and then they were saying how like when silky alleges that fisk found out about matt murdoch's real identity matt murdoch's uh accounts were frozen uh, he had issues with with the the bar, and they're suggesting that this was Fisk, like trying to test that information. Um, they say that when Elektra died, stabbed by by Bullseye, he she died at the at the steps of Matt Murdock's apartment, and Elektra Nachos herself was Matt Murdock's mm-hmm. girlfriend in college. And so there's a lot of uh, additional proof there to to back it up, and. You know, the the FBI director or the leader of the investigation, whatever he may be, he's a more cautious man. He says, like, we need to really figure out what's going on until then. This absolutely does not leave this room. And as he steps away and allows his investigators to, to look more into it, they kind of glance at each other mysteriously, I would say. That's kind of where that scene ends. Next morning, Foggy Nelson, Daredevil's uh, trusted friend, is out there, you know, buying his morning paper, drinking his coffee, front cover of the 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 rag, I guess the 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 Daily Globe. It says Globe exclusive pulp hero of Hell's Kitchen is blind lawyer. And so the first issue ends with Foggy Nelson looking absolutely terrified as he sees his friend outed as as the hero that he knows him to be. The next issue kind of opens with with Matt Murdock waking up and he says, I know before I'm even awake, even in my sleep, I can hear them. And it's just like this new this revelation has become the chatter of the town and people are outside his building parked trying to figure out if it's true or not. uh, Foggy gets to Matt Murdock's uh, apartment and he tells people that they are crazy for accusing uh, a handicapped person of being this that they need to get a better hobby like it, it seems like the strategy is deny 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 um we get a brief recess in that to see kind of how this happened we go back to that scene where the two agents are looking at each other and they had had a bet where they were saying that the guy was going to bury this story that it was never going to see the 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 light of day and this is kind of where bendis shines in that he gives these supporting characters a lot more depth than you would think 
like this agent, he he leaves here and he goes to meet up with his partner with the, the, this girl, and you can sense this this tension between them uh, of like his job maybe is not paying that well, and she has stuff to do, and she's kind of frustrated with with his professional career, and you know he he doesn't like he's trying to do more, but he can't really he's at wit's end. And so you you can tell that that's kind of the the frame of mind that he's in when he decides to sell this story to the newspaper that he knows because he's tired that the director is burying it, something that he knows to be true. He's in a place where he needs more money. And so he decides to sell the story and uh, kind of pulls out a string that will end up unraveling a lot of Matt Murdock's life. Back to Foggy Nelson, who just showed up. He goes to, to Matt and he tells him, like, hey, I'm here for you. Matt Murdock's initial uh, initial instinct is to say, like, listen, you need to go away, Foggy. Like, if I come clean and say I am Daredevil, like, you need some distance. And Foggy's kind of like, you can't do that, right? You can't come clean because he brings up what has been explored previously by Bendis, that it's like Matt Murdock is trying cases as a lawyer and then Daredevil is doing them as a vigilante. Like, you're going to unravel... Like you're working both sides of the law, it's going to seem like Matt Murdock was defrauding the American justice system, yeah. and so it's like too complex, right? So he's like, "What we're going to do is deny, 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 and we're going to sue the newspaper that published this, and we are going to figure out like who is doing this to you." And as Foggy is talking and, and saying, "Like you know, this is my chance now to be supportive of you because Daredevil the hero has always been there for." Uh, for, for for Foggy and so he's like okay that's great but then Foggy kind of keeps on pushing it there and he's saying like let's fix this problem but maybe you need to look at this as saying like now is a time to retire right and, and to hang up the, the Daredevil costume because like how much more can you go through and they go through this very philosophical argument where, where Foggy is trying to tell him make him see that Matt Murdock has been saying like oh like he feels angry, he feels like his life gets out of control, and he blames Bullseye. And then Foggy saying, "Like, at what point are you responsible for this pain that that you keep on uh, seeming to be unhappy about? Because it's like, you know, you put on this costume and then you lose Electra, and then you put on this costume again, and these villains come after you, and now you've lost Karen Page, which again is from the beginning of this run." And it's like at some point you keep on you're the one that keeps on causing this cycle of pain and, you know, you're feeding into it. And so like retire, like now's your opportunity to leave it behind. Like Foggy keeps on pushing him and saying, like, when will you stop? Was it is it when they kill me, Foggy, when they kill you? Like, when does it end? Right. Like there, there's no exit strategy for heroes that they're, they're, I guess, meant to keep on doing it until it's just too much. And so a lot of, uh, again, it's like Matt Murdock is, is a very Catholic character. I think one of the most Catholic concepts in media is guilt. And so this is like the the thing that Bendis keeps on poking at, right? Like when does Bendis start, when does Murdock start feeling too guilty about the stuff that happens around him and it starts attributing it to himself? As this is happening, there's a brilliant scene with J. Jonah Jameson who is uh, talking to his staff and wondering... <laughs> How much he pays them for their inability to get to 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 find the the story and get scooped by the the gossip type. Like I guess it's like the issue that ends up scooping them is a uh, is a a Sun type publication, right? To, so um, he's he's saying that he's angry. He wants people out there to find out the truth. 
And then Ben Yurick tells J. Jonah Jameson that the story is wrong, that he knows who Ma Daredevil is and that that isn't who he is. And then J. Jonah Jameson is obviously frustrated, very, you know, uh, like typical character yelling and screaming that he wants to know. Um, when he demands to know who he is, Ben Yurick says that he's not going to tell him as he's driving J uh, JJJ crazy. Peter Parker walks in and tells him, uh, you know, this is wrong. This story isn't true. I know who Daredevil is and it's not Matt Murdock. And so now he's literally blowing a gasket. He's like, you know, you're going to tell me or you're going to be fired. And Peter Parker is like, fine, I quit. And then Ben Yurick is like, if I blow my source on this, like you're not going to have any, you know, any other. So you're not going to fire me. You're going to let me keep on doing my stories. But you now know that I'm telling you that this isn't true. And as they both leave, Peter and Ben Yurick look at each other outside the building now. And they both know that they just lied, that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, right? And that they both knew the truth. And so they they they're just uh, they chat about it and they're just wondering about Matt Murdock's state of mind and that's kind of I guess the main thing that keeps on being explored in this volume as to like when does it become too much and like there's a point where there's a bunch of reporters outside Matt Murdock's apartment and he's just standing over them and he's like he just takes off his mask and obviously it's dark the everyone's instinct is not to look at the lamppost right above them but like as they're looking at the door he's standing he's he's perched on the lamppost right above them staring them straight at at staring at them with his face uncovered and it's like you're kind of seeing Matt Murdock lose it right he's just like do i have the energy in me to fight this more so at some point though as this is happening he kind of snaps back into it and then you start seeing the other sides of the complications of being outed that I can't remember if it's Mr. Jekyll in officially in the comic books, like what the villain's name base actual name is the one that's based off of Jekyll and Hyde, but he shows up at there and he starts throwing cars around. And so Spider-Man shows up and, and helps stop him so that uh daredevil doesn't have, isn't forced to show his hand and, and be the one out there fighting. He even does the, this, this funny little thing where he calls daredevil Man Man Manischewitz, I think it's like like uh, some random Jewish last name. So to to throw people off the scent of, of it being Matt Murdock, and you know, like it, it's just it, it goes on from there. The story has a lot of other brilliant moments where Matt Murdock comes out and, and gives a press conference, and he says um, he talks about his past when he was a young child and, and getting hit by a car and sense of responsibility and so on. But what he ends up doing is he does what Foggy described as the only option that he has. And so he denies that he's daredevil. And he says that he is, he has filed a lawsuit against the newspaper that, um, that published that. And at the same time on as daredevil and working with black widow and, and, and some friends, he's trying to figure out who put out that story that he, that who, who's responsible for that leak. Right. If I, of any, of all the superheroes that, uh, you know, of all the people where you, it's quite easy to deny, I feel like Matt Murdock has got an easier job compared to almost anybody else. He's like, I'm blind. Of course it's not me. And he's he's a high-profile blind lawyer, right? So people know that he's blind, so it's, are skeptical. But, you know, it's, it's a different universe out there. As he's trying to f find out who's done this to him, he meets with Vanessa Fisk. And if you guys don't remember, Vanessa Fisk was is the wife uh, of the kingpin and when the kingpin got stabbed but survived she took over and made sure to punish all the people that had organized that coup 
she goes there and tells uh, Matt Murdock that she she's breaking up the business. She's selling the king's pins, kingpin's business to, you know, other mobsters and so on, so that they can handle it. And she gives she does Matt Murdock one last favor, and that's that she gives him the name of the FBI agent that outed him to the press. And so you know Matt Murdock is still out there trying to figure out what's happening as he's still like thinking about what Foggy Nelson told him that he's responsible for this cycle of pain. He meets up with another uh, supporting character of the Daredevil arc, and that's Elektra. And she shows up because it's, it's like they have a very complex relationship where she is clearly a person with not the same moral uh, values that that Daredevil has, but she cares very much deeply for Matt Murdock. And so she shows up and she's been was kind of summoned by by the Black Widow as uh, as Black Widow found out what Foggy had said to Daredevil. And they talk and, you know, Electra's perspective is that the only death that you're responsible for is the one that you committed with your hands. Right. Which is, I guess, the opposite view of Foggy, who kind of is like, well, at what point do you start becoming responsible? I think Batman also kind of has this question with the Joker was like, how many times is your rule of not killing valid before you start becoming responsible for yeah. the deaths that the Joker commits? Right. And so it's like some interesting uh, philosophical questions that, that Bendis puts to the heroes. And I think that's kind of why I enjoy I, I'm a big fan of street level heroes. They're a lot less flashy than like, you know, your your Avengers or, or your X-Men. But they deal with uh, a lot more realistic complexities that I, I find very relatable. Um, Matt Murdock ends up showing up at the window of the FBI agent as he wakes up and he literally just looks at him through the window and then disappears, and you know that's kind of enough for him to 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 put the fear of God into this agent that outed him. He then goes to deal with the newspaper. There's a, I, I believe his his name is Rosenthal, the editor of the newspaper, and they show up. Blind lawyer Matt Murdock, partner Foggy, and an additional partner, and they eventually reach um, like they reach, I guess, a compromise so that they're not going to to, to have the lawsuit, right? Like uh, they settle outside of court. And as Matt Murdock is leaving, he's using his, his stick. So he's tapping around like a blind person. And that makes Rosenthal snap. And he cancels the settlement that they were going to have. <laughs> and he says, you can take me to court. I will fight you with every cent that I have because I know that it's true. And I know that like it's insulting that you're pretending to be a blind person when I know that this is true, right? Like he verified his facts. And so that's kind of hanging up in the air as this volume finishes. This volume also has a side story um, at the very end where other uh, street level heroes are starting to get brought into the fold. It deals with White Tiger, who is a Hispanic um, hero by the name of Hector Ayala. And the, the, his plot is kind of very Law & Order SVU. He went to stop, like, a, or sorry, just Law & Order regular. And he went to stop somebody, somebody stealing a TV. And then the cops came in and then the thieves shot the cop. But then he was the one left there standing. And so he is on trial for killing a cop. And, you know, U.S. mentality, there is nothing word for, worse for cops than a cop killer. Like, it's a very serious situation. And so he's in a lot of trouble and Iron Fist and Luke Cage, who uh, also live in New York, street level heroes, they come to find Daredevil and they're like, you know, he doesn't need Daredevil. He needs Matt Murdock. He needs the lawyer. He needs um, somebody that can help him. 
And so Matt Murdock is saying, it's like, my life is a circus right now. I don't know that if it, it helps White Tiger for me to come into it, but it's kind of a bit to be able to help him to regain his center, to find his abilities. It's a complicated case where they try to portray Hector Ayala as a man out of control, as, as a person that didn't realize the consequences of his actions, that he would have to be slightly off-center to even be dressing up as a superhero. And, you know, Matt Murdock does his best, brings a, a series of, of high-key, high-profile witnesses like Doctor Strange, uh, Reed Richards. They all come and testify in favor of White Tiger. And the end, the verdict comes in and they find uh, the White Tiger guilty, guilty as charged. And he does it like that's unacceptable for him, right? Like he knows he's not guilty. He loses it. He loses it. He kind of snaps. And he, you know, being a superhero, he frees himself of restraints and starts running out, escaping. And as he's on the stairs in front of the court, he gets shot down. And that's the end of White Tiger, right? So another failure to to the list of Dare's Devil's uh, list you know it adds the, the the to the guilt that he's feeling um spoiler alert it's also a way to set up a new white tiger that comes in and plays a, a a role in the future but you know the last part that you see in this first book is this daredevil showing up in, at the the office of the place who actually uh, uh, sorry at the house of the person who actually killed uh the cops and forcing them to go confess and so they do end up doing that clearing his name even though they weren't able to save his life but it's just kind of to that point where Daredevil plays both sides uh, of justice, right? Like, he does cross lines that shouldn't be crossed. He tries things as Matt Murdock, and when they don't go his way, he goes and fixes them as Daredevil. So it's just like these recurring themes and motifs that Bendis, Bendis explores that I find super fascinating. Um, the next volume, Volume 6, Low Life, it deals with the the kingpins, uh, I guess, kind of kingdom being broken up, right? And one of the people that that has been desperate to get a piece of that pie is one of uh, Daredevil's classic villains, Owl. The Owl, whose name is Leland Owly or Owlsy, I think. And it's like <laughs> that kind of thing where, you know, like it, it, back in the day, it made sense. It's like, I think you came up with the concept first of an owl and then everything around him was just like, his last name has the word owl. His hair is owl-like. You know, like he's obsessed with owls. It, it's just kind of campy and ridiculous. But Bendis, again, tries to ground them a lot more. Like he, he sets him up as this villain who wants to be a kingpin type, but is never able to gain enough power. And so, you know, um, Daredevil's consist, consistent confrontations with him get kind of elevated here. And it's just more psychological, the game that they're playing, like, Daredevil makes the owl feel pathetic about the fact that he wasn't even able to be given part of the Kingpin's like domain. And, you know, Kingpin plays with the fact that he is or he knows he's Matt Murdock. And so there's a point where, you know, Daredevil comes and confronts uh, the, the owl and he he has his lawyer there and he's like talking to him. Mr. Murdock, you're like in violation of like, you know, you're breaking and entering, even though it's Daredevil. And he's being recorded and stuff. And so, like, he kind of forces his hand. Throughout this volume, there's also some other important characters that are set up. Uh, in the beginning, as he's going through some stressful times, he's able to save uh, a blind woman from getting run over. Her name is Mila. She was about to get run over by a truck. And that's kind of important because it's a parallel to how Daredevil got his powers when he was a kid. He did the same thing for yeah. somebody else. And so it's kind of, I guess, you're starting to think, like, is this... 
is say like is he saving himself and saving Mila, right? And they start developing a bit of a bit of a romance, which you know is kind of nice to see Matt Murdock happy, but at the same time, it's like your life is so complicated, and you've decided <laughs> to throw in this extra layer of complication. Um, as Daredevil deals with the owl's growing influence, there are some other things happening in the background. Uh, Rosenthal, the millionaire editor of um, of of the newspaper, he's in, swimming in his pool, and then next thing you know, he's dead, and his pool head ripped off straight from the body. And so, as he has a very public lawsuit with lawyer uh, Matt Murdock, who has now been outed as superhero Daredevil, he's been brought. Matt Murdock gets brought into questioning for this, and they have a subpoena to check his house to make sure sh- to to see, you know, if there's anything there. And so it's like this is where he keeps all his equipment. Foggy's stressed out. Um, fortunately, they find nothing. And then Foggy asks them, you cleaned it out? And he's like, yeah, the minute that that was uh, at, that, like the tablets went live, I cleaned out the entire thing because I guess he presumed that this could happen. It's interesting to see the second volume because it's. The first one is kind of with like dealing with the chaos of this big incident that happened. The second one is kind of letting him find a bit of a ground in this new normal where people kind of know that he's Daredevil, even though they can't prove it. He's kind of like heard both sides of the guilt uh, question from Elektra. He's heard it from uh, Foggy. And so he's kind of trying to figure out for his own where he lands. Mila has been brought into it as a new uh, romantic interest. And it's just, uh, it's great. Eventually at the end, you you find out that the person that killed Rosenthal and has been pulling the owl strings is one and the same. It's the kingpin. He's back and he wants his revenge. And so Matt Murdock just kind of overhears that because again, he's a lawyer, right? And the FBI agents are talking and he just hears at the very end, it's like, you know, it just kind of sucks that he doesn't know. And they're asking him like, he doesn't know what, that Wilson Fisk, he's back in the country. The kingpin is back. And that's just where this ends with Daredevil hearing that revelation. And so, yeah, like I'm still like these two books are a blast. I love them. I could read them infinite amount of times like this. This Bendis run is great. I think the idea of uh, the big challenge that a hero facing is being outed is not one that is explored often. I think they try to go bigger and bigger in terms of villains with more complex powers and counteracting the hero's abilities. But Bendis does the opposite. He goes down to basics, right? He's just like, I'm going to ruin Daredevil's life with a newspaper is how he does it. Like, no, uh, he like throughout the, the issue, he easily beats up the the um, Jekyll or Hyde. I can't even remember what his name is in the comic books in the previous issue. He doesn't have trouble with the owl in this one, but it, it he's not able to fix the bigger problem that's occurring to him. And so, yeah, that's why that's why I loved this this particular run. I think it's a good thing I thought of when you said that uh, he cleaned out his house. I thought I thought back to the Ben Affleck Daredevil film where he sleeps in like a coffin filled with milk, and it's like, yeah. well, good thing, good thing that six one six Daredevil doesn't do that because that's quite a hard thing to shift. It's like, oh my 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 metal coffin that I have in my room. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? Like, I feel like I'm also doing a bit of a disservice to the Bendis run by not acknowledging that it is very much like a, a noir run, and so it's like. 
the people are very gray, like the cops that I mentioned earlier, like Mila, like they all have their complications. And then the city is a big part of uh, like a big character in it. And when they meet uh, Mila, I can't remember exactly her job off the top of my head, but it has something to do with the city, like with, with Hell's Kitchen, where they live. And they talk about the history of Hell's Kitchen in this other volume. And it illustrates um, the way that Hell's Kitchen went like was originally developed into where it is now. And there's a lot of parallels there with, with Matt Murdock's own history with, with his city. So, I mean, I can't recommend this run enough, to be honest. I'm so excited that I'm reading it again. I, I almost want to keep on reading more and more every month, <laughs> but I'm controlling myself, pacing myself. So yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what I had for this week. How much or this month? How much is, how long does it go on for? So what, seven, you're up to seven. You say? I think it's 14. So I might be start doing three, groups of threes now but um yeah because i i think to me like the big moments are like the ones at the beginning the rest of it gets even with volume six now like you're kind of a little bit like the you know he loses his balance in the beginning and now he's finding it but it's a different a different normal for him and the ending of the bendis run which i will not spoil yet it is great it's it it's one of those things where uh Bendis finishes his run by putting him in the worst place that he's ever been. And then that's where Ed Brubaker has to start his run. And he does a very similar thing to the next writer. And it's just like a baton passing of great writers dealing uh, uh, with a complex storyline. Well, did you see that, uh, spoilers for modern day comics, did you see that one uh, that uh, Echo that was previously uh, mentioned is the new Phoenix? That's uh, I, quite I did not see that. I'm still behind the current comics. Wow, that's that's interesting. I'm gonna look into that, but yeah, I like Echo. Um, I have I'm behind in the current Daredevil comics. Like I've been buying them, but I just haven't been reading them yet because I think there was at some point when Sewell was the writer that I stopped buying comics for a little bit. For I think I just had too many and I didn't have where, anywhere to put them. So I was like, until I figured that out, I need I'm gonna stop buying. And so I haven't been able to catch up since then. I'm purchasing them again, so I have them. But it's like maybe this is the time. As I get as I go through this Daredevil run, I'll make it all the way back to present time. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing all about it, and I'll I'll live I'll <laughs> I'll experience Devil Daredevil through you, and never read it myself. One day, <laughs> well, especially there's four. I mean, are these like because Marvel? They're pretty skinny. Yeah, Marvel trade paperbacks are the yeah yeah. Okay, so I would say like maybe three are three or four are like one age of apocalypse. Yeah, I was gonna say because if you're reading three of these, your uh, yeah. your pace of reading is much quicker than mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I have to. I'm looking forward to uh, not being in the Age of Apocalypse anymore. The uh, polar opposite. Yeah, I think when I'm done the Bendis run, I'm gonna switch it up to do some other stuff. Like I was thinking, I would love to revisit The Order by Matt Fraction, which was this great um run of like it was people that had a lot of uh, complexity being given powers after a civil war. And I love that. And I would love to revisit it. I was thinking about the 12 by uh, J. Michael Straczynski, I think is his last name, which is also very interesting. It's kind of this uh, retro, this, this throwback of like these heroes that were forgotten after the war. I, I think that one was great. So I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to take the, the Bendis run all the way to the, I, I'm going to take the Bendis run to the end. I'm not going to take the Daredevil to present time. But I will do it on my own time to make sure that I don't lose momentum. <laughs> well, I, to, I haven't read those either. So, yeah, they're both good. I 
at least you're not started out. At least I haven't inspired you to read The Age of Apocalypse. I feel like I would have done you a disservice. <laughs> Listen, I have those there, and it's like I respect them for what they were. I don't think they aged well, and I do think that it's like there's so much going on beyond the core of the story that is superfluous. Like it's like such a just you can tell that they're just doing it to sell more issues, pretending that it really ties in when it wasn't necessary. Especially I remember that those uh those blinks those blink issues back in the first one. It's like, why is this here? I don't care. Mm-hmm. As 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 yeah. predicted, it's had literally nothing to do with anything that has happened. No one from the negative zone, that's where she went, has ever shown up ever again. So oh, that was Yeah. That was a valuable worth of reading my time. Speaking of using my time, since we last spoke, a lot of superhero entertainment media has been let loose on planet Earth, much to the joy of Twitter. Have you consumed any of it? Yeah, I mean, I've consumed most of it. I I watched the incredibly long Snyder movie, um, which I had mixed opinions on. I heard it's an improvement on the Joss Whedon version, which I have not seen, so I had nothing to compare it to. Uh, I just felt, I still felt like it it didn't justify being four hours. I I think asking somebody to sit down and watch a movie for four hours is a big ask. You should have a big payoff. And it was, it was okay is how I felt. Um, I watched Captain America, whatever that one's called, the Winter Soldier. Soldier. I think it's all right. I think it's not as interesting as WandaVision was. It's not bad, but I think uh, Marvel's formula is very well suited to a movie. Struggles a little bit. When it's adapted to TV, you know, I don't think uh, it feel it. It feels like it lags, like it drags, and it also feels like it's not enough mm. somehow. So I mean, needs some adjusting there, but it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. And it also brought in uh, Isaiah Bradley, who's the the Black Captain America, which is a great story. That's also definitely worth a read if you're ever looking into some other options. Yeah, I I have not seen the Snyder Cut yet. I have seen Josh Whedon's Justice League, so I certainly hope it's better than that. But the thing that has stopped me from seeing it is finding four hours to be like... Exactly. Because I don't particularly like watching films and then pausing midway through and then watching it the next day, but finding a free four hours, I may have to... uh... Although it's split Mm -hmm. up into chapters, right? So perhaps maybe I'll just sort of watch a chapter... And then the next day, like spread it out like a unevenly length yeah. television show over a week. Mm-hmm. Falcon Wind Soldier, yeah, I agree. I think it's fine. Um, I like. I think the bonus of these shows is there's no way Falcon or Wind Soldier are ever going to get their film starring them. They're, yeah, yeah. So at least you're getting something that's about them. I think it gets better every week. I thought it was a bit dull at the start it's like it started off at a high with that exciting falcon scene in the in the canyon but i also knew when watching it's like we're never we're not going to get a scene like this again and we haven't it's all been very yeah on the ground but Mm -hmm. that's fine nothing wrong with that um have you been watching invincible i watched the first four today before this i have not yet but i'm going to i've read invincible but it's good it's it's fine uh if you like the Walking Dead cast, they all show up at various points. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Stephen Young, so I'm excited. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. I've heard nothing yeah. but good things. I think. Uh, oh, see, I know what I know. What Invincible is about. I just haven't haven't read it. 
And I do feel that perhaps mm-hmm. animation was the uh, correct choice when dealing with the right way. With, uh, I feel like maybe it never would have been made if it was actual people performing some of those acts on other people. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, it's only five episodes. Worth watching. I don't know how many there are, but yeah, these first few have been good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's Pity Student Read episode 14. Rodrigo, tell us about the other things you do outside of comic book reading. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm one of the, the creators of a, a movie magazine called Layered Butter. You can find us at layeredbutter.com. I'm also the co-host of the Layered Butter podcast, which is available on all your podcast places uh, by that name. You can find me on all social media, basically, at rcocting, R-C-O-K-T-I-N-G. You can find PhD Student Reads on Twitter, at PhD Reads. Big P, big R, small D. But I think as we discussed last time, it doesn't actually make any difference. I didn't test that out, but I've got you to say it now. Share it with your friends. Share it with your enemies. I don't care. Share it with anyone. Random share strangers on the street. It's like, you want to... Shout it from the rooftop. You want to hear a complain about the, pocket, the comic book he chose to read? <laughs> <laughs> the self-inflicted yeah. There's one left. So then, whatever, whatever I read after this, it's going to be amazing. Unless... It's even worse, which then begs the question, why do I own it? But, you know, I have... Do you know what you're reading I'm thinking, you've been reading a lot of Bendis, and I have Jinx, the trade paperback, like his pre-superhero. Yeah, I've never read it. I found it in a uh, thrift shop, it was like two pounds. I picked that up. I've also got, got all sorts of things. I've got Batman, I've got the whole... The whole uh, No Man's Land, all the way from Cataclysm all the way up to the end of No Man's Land. I haven't read that. My advice, my stack of things I haven't read is bigger than what I have. I've got the Irredeemable Omnibus under there, but that's enormous. There's no way I could do that in a month. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm, I'm excited to, to see you move on from the Age of Apocalypse. I just want to superheroes that are normally proportioned. I think that, I'm looking forward to that most of all. <laughs> but yeah, this has been... A PhD student read Age of. Uh, it has not been a PhD student read Age of Apocalypse. It's been a PhD student read Episode 14. Goodbye! Bye! Bye.